Today is, uh, if you don't know, today is Christ the King Sunday. Um, it's, the, it's the last Sunday of the church calendar. Uh, we start Advent next year, which is uh, not next year, next week. It's the beginning of the new church year. We end on this note of proclaiming and celebrating the fact that Christ is the King who reigns over uh, all nations and all places uh, under the earth, in the earth, and above the earth. Christ is the reigning King. And that's the image you're supposed to keep in your mind as we move into Advent and look forward to his coming. We are looking forward to the coming of the reigning king uh, in the world. So uh, that's why we read Psalm 2 this morning. That was why our call to worship, which is a royal psalm about the kingship of the son established by God. And today we're going to look at why we view Jesus as the reigning king. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. You can look in a Bible uh, in your hand, or you can look on a screen, or you can just listen. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices. They would, might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that's here before us. God, we pray that you would help us. Certainly help me to be able to speak it today and help all of us to be able to hear and not just to hear with our ears, but to receive with our hearts. Help us to hear the word of the resurrected Jesus and to respond with the entirety of our lives. God, let us be consumed by love from you and love for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me first just explain why we stopped at verse 8. And maybe help you understand something that your Bible is probably telling you if you're looking at it. Um, right underneath the end of where, where I just finished reading, my Bible at least has in brackets and in capital letters, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And uh, your Bible is trying to tell you uh, that most scholars now do not believe that the verses from 9 to 20 are the verses that were Mark originally wrote. They were put there later. Most people um, agree that, that Mark didn't write verses 9 through 20. And uh, I'm going to just preach as if that is the case. Let me just 
let you feel at ease. This is not like something that's happening all over your Bible. You don't have to look at the whole of your Bible and say, like, well, what isn't real? This is, your Bible is going to tell you exactly the places where there's these sort of concerns. And there's two of them. This one and a story that everybody loves in John. The story of the woman caught in adultery. That's it. Um, we're not saying that the Bible is not trustworthy. It's just, in fact, the fact that we are putting this right there in front of you is to help you know that we're very convinced the Bible is trustworthy and it's so trustworthy that we can see where there's any question about whether a word was not transmitted to you and to me appropriately. Um, so we're going to stop at verse 8 because that's where I think Mark's words stopped. Now, people, you can probably feel, as I read, this is a pretty weird ending. And there's kind of two different approaches to that weirdness. One is, well, Mark meant it to be weird. And it's weird for a good reason. And uh, the weirdness will ask some questions of you. The other possibility is Mark had more words that were meant to be after verse 8 in either the paper broke or Mark died or he just never got to finish the story. We can't find the original words that Mark intended. And I, look, I can't tell you which one of those is correct. All I know, feel pretty strongly about is that the words end at verse 8. And I think that what is there in verses 1 through 8 is a good and sufficient ending of what Mark writes to ask of us some questions today. It's important to hear and to listen to what is there in verses 1 through 8. And to see what we are being invited to see at the proclamation that is the women are given to proclaim. Mark has set up for us that these women would be going back to the tomb. If you remember, if you can think back, Mark had prepped us for this list of women before the burial. They were concerned about the treatment of Jesus' body. And they, uh, they were there at the crucifixion. They were, they were there when the body was moved to Joseph Arimathea's tomb. And they come back now because the Sabbath is over. They can now do all to Jesus' body that they wanted to do, but they couldn't do during the Sabbath because they run out of time. They come to anoint his body. And the, the scene is spooky. It's early in the morning on Sunday. It's half light. It's quiet. Because that's what an early morning in a cemetery is like. And they walk up to this place where Jesus was buried. And the tomb is open. When they knew they did not leave it open. And they knew that they would not be able to open it all by themselves. But a man is standing there. A nameless man. Almost as if he's waiting there for them. He's dressed in white. And in this surreal scene, this man tells them, he's not here. Jesus of Nazareth is not here, but he will meet you in Galilee. And go tell everyone. 
and they freak out. <laughs> they run away, terrified. Now, this to us, as if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who's used to the story of Easter and you're used to the story of the Gospels, this feels especially strange because this is the best news. This is the, the emotional high point of the story. But you need to allow yourself to enter back into the story at this point of things. Dead people do not come back to life. When you bury someone, they are gone. They are in the ground, they are dead, and you will never see them again. You don't walk to the cemetery at any time of day, any day of the week, and, and go there and wonder, I wonder who's going to be gone today. When you go to the cemetery, the dead are buried. And that's what they expect. And now everything is different. There is something terrifying about what they are being told. It is the emptying of graves into the world. And they don't have the framework to process what they are being told. And this is, in fact, a testimony of all the disciples. This is one of the marks of the, the truth-telling of the Gospels themselves. The, the disciples are not telling you a fabricated story where they are saying, guys, we knew it the whole time. We knew exactly what was going to happen. We had faith like you wouldn't believe. We were never even disturbed when Jesus was dead because we knew he was going to be alive. They were told multiple times by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark that he would rise from the dead, and they just cannot understand what they are being told. So that when it finally happens, they don't believe. Because dead people do not come back to life. So the reaction of, this, of these women is not strange. It's normal. This is, in fact, probably what you or I would do. If we went to the grave of a recently buried loved one, and we were told by a stranger that this empty hole is where they once laid, but they are gone now. They're terrified, and they run away. This is the end of the world. The resurrection is the end of the world. That is the power of what is being announced to them. And the reaction to that announcement is a better indication of the power of what is being disclosed than we often give it credit for. The resurrection is the end of an era in human history. This is how the apostles will talk about it as early as Acts chapter 2. There has been a cataclysmic end of the world series of events, and the resurrection of Jesus has moved the whole of human history into a new era. And now, the era that they are living in and the era that we are living in is an overlapping of times. Before, up until this moment, the whole of history was dominated by the power of the grave. Because the grave is the ultimate end. It is the final piece of punctuation on every single story in human history until this moment. And in this moment, there's a shifting because the power of the grave is broken. 
There has now been one who has entered into the full-throated power of the grave, has faced it, and has broken its hold over human story and all of creation. So when the people begin to describe what has happened in Jesus' resurrection, they will not just say, it's a really good thing that this one person was raised from the dead. What they'll say is, when this one person was truly bodily raised from the dead, it changed everything. And now this is the central event around which our story turns, around human history turns, and now around which all of creation turns. They are afraid because they are rightly recognizing the power of what is being proclaimed. The resurrection of Jesus gets up under the roots of the power of every dark force that is available in the world and topples it. The resurrection of Jesus is a terrifying power. Now, you and I are hearing of this story with the ability to hear more of the story. Mark's story, for whatever reason, ends at verse 8. But we know from the rest of the Gospels that the women do not stay in a state of terror. That That in fact, some of these women themselves directly interact with the resurrected Jesus. And it totally changes how they see the world. We know that that they don't end or they don't stay in a place of terror because they ultimately are confronted by the person of Jesus. And so now, just as Mark's first readers were able to hear the end of the story in the context of the whole community, you are able now to do the same. You are sitting in a room in which you are being given demonstration over and over and over again that the women did not stay in terror. The existence of this people, of the Christian people, is entirely about the proclamation of this resurrection. And the women, though they ran away afraid that day, did not stay afraid. And we are inheritors of their proclamation. Now, you and I can look at one another and see the end of a story that Mark did not write and likely could not have envisioned in and of himself that we, these people, 2,000 years later, thousands and thousands of miles away, in a place and time that were unimaginable, are now inheritors of this proclamation that Jesus has been raised from the dead. If you look for Jesus of Nazareth, you will not find him in a tomb because he's alive. But the question that's put to you and to everybody who hears and reads Mark's gospel is the question that's been put to you the entirety of his gospel. Will you become a disciple of Jesus? Will will you follow this one? 
And it feels like there should be something more at the end of Mark's gospel to help you make this choice. But here's the reality. Mark emphasizes, and indeed all of Christian teaching emphasizes, the importance of responding to the word rather than what you see with your eyes. You are not, in some sense, allowed to see the resurrected Jesus in Mark's gospel. Not even on the words on the page do you get to see him. All that you're left with is the word of him. And disciples receive and believe the word. And the word of Jesus' resurrection has now come to you. Jesus is alive. Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus has been resurrected and has ascended in power. You cannot see him with your eyes. Will you hear his word, though? And will you believe? Mark's gospel ends with a question put to you and to me, the reader. Will you follow in the way of the disciple? Jesus, his story here is presented in the gospel of Mark with a very simple beginning and introduction. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I are living in its continuation. The beginning is before you in the pages of this text. But the longer running story is still in play. The beginning establishes the facts. Christ is the king. He has triumphed over the very worst enemy. Every alternative power that is available on this earth. In Mark's gospel, he triumphs over sickness. He triumphs over spiritual evil. He triumphs over evil cloaked in the power of religion. He triumphs in the face of political oppression and violence. He triumphs over nature. He triumphs over everything that is thrown over at him. Jesus is the powerful reigning king over heaven and earth. And now you and I are invited to see with the eyes of faith what is being offered to us in the words of the gospel. And the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus will never be contained to the events of 2,000 years ago or to the words on a page. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, and somehow the telling of this story has grown so familiar to you that all that you think of, when you think of the events of Easter, when you think of the events of that first Sunday, is, oh yeah, Jesus was risen from the dead, then you have begun to be deceived. 
You have grown so familiar with the truth that you have forgotten the audacity of its proclamation. And today, the word is going out to you again to call you back to remembrance. The audacious claim is that Jesus is still alive. That the Jesus of the Gospels is not dead. He is not gone. He is not alienated from the world. That he has not been overcome. That he himself will actually be the ultimate and final overcomer. That the era that is overlapping with the old era will come to an end. And one day, the the era of the resurrected Son of God will be the entirety of the story of humanity. And that guarantee shapes your life and mine. That guarantee casts a different light on our own death. That guarantee casts a different light on our own suffering. That guarantee changes everything in the entirety of human history. It changes everything about the entirety of your history. It does not erase the mystery of your life. I do not know why you might suffer. I do not know why you might face such heartbreak and evil. I do not know why all the powers that have crashed against Jesus seem to crash upon you and maybe even overwhelm you. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus is alive. And that if Jesus is alive, then everything is going to be all right. I don't know when, and I don't know how, but I know that if he is alive, then everything is going to be okay. That truth is the anchoring truth of the life of the disciple. If you are here today as a disciple of Jesus and your hope has grown dim and your love has grown cold, it is for you that the Son of God was resurrected. It is for you that he overcame. And he has always turned terrified, fleeing disciples and to his best of friends and the most able proclaimers of his goodness and power. So if you are like these women, you should take heart. You don't have to be afraid. Even in your failure, you don't have to be afraid because Jesus is the resurrected Lord and he is for you a sure and constant hope even if you are fickle and afraid. And today, if you do not follow Jesus, if you are not one of his disciples, this is the invitation. I cannot show him to you. The life of faith was meant to be lived, in some sense, with your ears, not your eyes. And if that is difficult for you, You're in good company. (laughs) Every disciple has felt what you feel. But the word of this news is proclaimed here to you, even for the one for whom it is difficult.
and the resurrected Lord Jesus was raised for you. Your life does not need to be defined by the powers of sin and death anymore. Your life can be defined by the resurrection of the Son of God. He holds all power and goodness. Not held, not will hold, but holds now and forevermore. So if today you hear his voice and you hear the word of his resurrection, believe and become his disciple. And he will lead you to the best of places now and forever. Let me pray for us. Living God, we give you thanks that Christ is king. We give you thanks for the testimony of our brother Mark through whom these words of scripture have come. We give you thanks that Jesus is risen from the dead and that in his light we see light. God, we give you thanks that the era of human history, of my history being dominated by sin and death has come to an end. And because of Jesus, there is hope. And God, I pray that my heart, that our hearts would be enlivened with the hope of the gospel. And God, I thank you that you've always dealt with people who couldn't handle who couldn't conceive, who couldn't understand of the greatness of the power of your love. I have been one who has run away in doubt and fear. And that does not undo or change what you have done. But you were resurrected in spite of me and resurrected for me. And God, I pray for the for all the disciples that are here this morning, those who have heard the words of Mark's gospel and desire to follow you, God, I pray that you would help them by the power of your Holy Spirit to see hope rekindled before their eyes again. In every place where it feels like hope is growing cold, where love is growing cold, where the darkness might press in, God, I pray that they would be reminded that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that ultimately, in light of that fact, everything will be reconciled and made right. They will be all right in you. And Jesus, I pray for those who are here who might hear my voice and are don't, don't know if the life of discipleship is for them because they find it difficult to believe something they cannot see. God, I pray that the word would go out and kindle in them faith, that they would be able to see with the eyes of faith what they cannot see with their eyes. God, I pray that they would hear the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And they would see what will be before them at the supper the sign of God's broken, open body for them. 
And God, I pray that they would see that the life of discipleship is an offer of a gift and that you would give to them the thing that that sign signifies. Help them hear and to know that there is room for them as well. God, thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Thank you for doing this for us. Thank you that our whole future is in safe hands, resurrected hands, reigning hands of Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.